Welcome to our second season of Shooting the Breeze. This time, we're casting our net wider. We're going to be talking to inspiring athletes, amazing coaches, and behind-the-scenes trailblazers from across the women's basketball landscape. As we start the run-up to the Olympics, another WNBL season, and the FIBA Women's World Cup being held right here in Sydney, as well as the Opals being ranked number two in the world, this is a great time to be a fan of Australian women's basketball. Don't forget to subscribe and be the first to know when we have more Hoops goodness headed your way. But it's about, obviously, the part of the on the court and then this is a, a big part off the court that can help make you well-rounded athlete, player, person and um, making sure that your career can be as long and, you know, a happy career. Four-time Olympian and ABPA board member Laura Hodges joins us to talk about the Players Association, advocating for better conditions for players and greater professionalism for the league to elevate its standing in a competitive sporting arena. Over the last few years, the ABPA has made real strides in securing better working conditions as well as support and advice for Aussie women basketball players. As a former WNBL EuroLeague and WNBA player, Laura has a unique appreciation of how players feel, as well as Australian conditions relative to those of other leagues around the world. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Joining us today is Laura Hodges. Laura, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, Laura, before we get into talking about the ABPA and what you've been doing with them, mm-hmm. let's just have a bit of a, a chat about your basketball career because it's really interesting. In terms of the WNBL, you've pretty much spent your entire career with Adelaide. Yeah, so I feel like my career really started uh, when I got a scholarship to the AOS, when I, I first won the scholarship. I don't know if one's the right word, but um, was asked to represent the AIS when I was 15. And then when I had moved there, I had just turned 16. So back then, that was when the Australian Institute of Sport was in the WNBL. So other than the Adelaide Lightning, I feel like the AIS uh, was my first team and I, I spent two years playing there and I felt very fortunate. I feel like that's when I started to really set my goals to be able to make a career of the game. Obviously, I had great ambitions when I first started playing when I was 10, but it was certainly the AIS that I think gave me those foundations to go, okay, I can make a goal of this and I can try and become an Olympian and I can play overseas and, you know, I can travel the world and all those kind of things. So it was very hard, I think, probably for my family because the first team they saw me play for was the AIS. So when I did play for the Lightning, even though the Lightning was the team that I followed and all my heroes and idols played for them, but my parents thought it was weird the first time I played against the AIS with the, in the Lightning uniform because they were like, oh, we're not sure who to, who to go for here. So, yeah, so I think that's where it sort of started for the WNBL and, and I just feel very grateful for that. You've also represented Australia in three Olympics. Oh, a four. Couple of world, four Olympics, actually. Four Olympics, yes, sorry, four. A couple of world championships. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you find... Uh, playing at that level in comparison to the WNBL? I think I think playing representing your country um, is definitely the pinnacle. Uh, it's you're representing so much when you wear the Australian uniform. Um, so there are 
there are differences, but then when you're representing a team um, within the WBO and for me, the Adelaide Lightning, you're you're with a team for such a long period of time. It's sort of that nine, ten months where with the Australian team, yes, you go on tours for weeks at a time. So there's the differences, but I, I think the the ultimate goal for me as a child definitely was to become an, an opal and to, to wear Back then it was the bodysuit and then it changed to shorts and singlets and now back to the bodysuit. But, um, yeah, so to represent your country was the ultimate. And so you, within your craft of your sport, you you work on your game within, you know, the team that you play for in the WBO or if it's in Europe. So you're trying to work on those goals to then be able to represent your country. So to make yourself, you know, if it's a better shooter, better defender, um, and that's, you need both to be able to, to be able to, you know, get to that pinnacle. It's interesting, having spoken to a number of players, it's always interesting to hear the different opinions on, you know, the differences between playing in the WNBL and playing for your country. Mm-hmm. Um, you touched on an interesting point about utilising the, the WNBL to develop your skill set. Now, when you did that, you also managed to get yourself playing for quite a number of teams overseas as well. Having had that experience, how did you find playing for those teams? I think probably the reason why I, I was able to play in Europe for um, just over eight years and play in the WNBA was probably more representing my country. And I think yeah. that a lot of European or overseas teams, they the the Opals has such a great great name and great legacy. And for me, it, it comes from the the players like the Trish Fallons, um, Sandy Brondellos. They paid the way and they did such a good job, Michelle Timms and and Lauren Jackson, you know, to be such top athletes. And so then when you represent your country, that's when people will go, oh, who's this new player? Who's who's coming along the ranks now? So, and that gave me the opportunity to when I first started playing in the WNBL, you know, I, I loved it and so passionate about it, but I could actually sort of um, make a living off playing overseas or in the WNBA or in, in Europe and in the European leagues. And so then I could like hone in on my craft even more and became just a, an athlete. And during a time when, you know, I was in my early 20s to be able to try and um, become a better player. And I think you can continue to become a better player through your whole career. Whereas my first few years in the WNBL with the Lightning, you you wake up at 5am to go to training, then I'd go to university, then I'd go to my work, and then I'd go back to training at, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock at night, and then you'd finally get home towards, you know, 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, and then the day starts again. So that recovery, the rest, that side of it when you're young I feel like you've got the energy to be able to do all that but I think it, it definitely is you know when you start to get a little bit older and you need that recovery and rest it's tough to be able to do as much of that training on the court which I got to do in Europe because you were just that elite athlete so. yeah before we get into talking about the ABPA mm-hmm. one last question what's your thoughts on going back to the bodysuit <laughs> Oh, I have mixed emotions. I think that um, obviously it was a player-driven thing, so it's great for the players and for them to have a voice to be able to to do that. And for me, 
I only ever knew the bodysuit, so I didn't know any different. But then when I went out of the bodysuit, I, you know, I understand the reasons why and, and to be able to sell a uniform or, or to make that marketable, which that's, you know, one of the things that in the elite game, you want to be able to sell the jerseys so that, you know, these young girls can wear the the Lauren Jackson singlets. And, and also um, I remember the days when you'd, you know, you'd, playing and you get all sweaty and then you're trying to quickly trying to you know go to a bathroom break and then trying to get back into the bodysuit it was never easy um and so I think it would be hard to go back to it today for me just because of the ease of it all uh and I've got a funny story where when I went to play my first season in the WNBA um and that was the first time I I hadn't worn the bodysuit for a very very long time and I was waiting and very nervous my first time it was just a practice game to go out onto the court and then my name was called up and you know you you watch how people like players in the the NBA WNBA they quickly get their tops off and run to you know to the bench to get in and I sort of did that forgetting that I didn't have a bodysuit underneath and I took my single off and everything off and I've got a stadium and all they could and all I felt was fresh air and then I heard this big like cheer and then laughter and the you know everyone on the bench and but do you know the one thing I do thank the bodysuit for that because I was so nervous that I couldn't think of anything else when I got on the court and I actually played quite well because I'm like nothing can be as bad as just showing my whole bare skin to a stadium full of 10,000 people so um yeah it's it's a funny one but um it yeah it's Certainly it was the bodysuit was what the Opals were all about, but I would definitely struggle to probably go to be wearing it right now. So obviously 12 years ago when, oh, it was probably eight years, eight or nine years ago when it changed, I probably wouldn't have thought any different. So, yeah. Okay. Um, well. I've just gone off track there, but that's No, right. no, that's fine. It's, it's great. You did ask the question. So. Yeah, no problem. So we'll we'll move along to to the ABPA now. So how did you start getting involved with the ABPA? Oh, so going back, so the person that probably could speak the most about um, the ABPA is Jacob Holmes. So he is the one that sort of started it and then obviously is the CEO now. He actually went to the AIS along with me. So we grew up actually together playing in Adelaide, playing for the same club in Adelaide. So, you know, obviously have sort of the, the same pathway through through the ranks. And he uh, started the Players Association when he was playing. And I think it was more when he was playing up in, um, in Townsville and for the NBL. But um, he then obviously saw the bigger picture and it's you know, wanted it to be one whole collective. It's not just the NBL and then the WNBL having a separate one because the WNBL tried to have one separately for a long time and there was past players that sort of did that and that was probably more when I was playing over in Europe. So he sort of um, came to a, a lot of the players that he knew and so I thought it was really, really smart to have that one banner NBL, WNBL, and then Opals and Boomers. So, you know, I think it's really important because they all sort of are intertwined. And obviously there's, you know, the next level again when you've got um, now the NBL1 and things like that, which is probably the dream to be able to have the big banner. But then that's obviously 
uh, another level again. And you've also got your, your wheelchair basketball. And so there is, you know, I think a pathway to broaden that but we sort of started having discussions and when well, when he sort of linked it all up and it was more 2000 I'd say 2014 when I just realized as a really important thing for especially my passion was more women's basketball and the players to have a voice and a collective voice and um, you know we would many a times you sit around the locker room or you talk after the game and you're like don't you wish it was you know, this was implemented or that was implemented, but then it never really went anywhere from that. So, mm. so yeah, 2014 was probably when I sort of started to really get more passionate about, yeah, like we need to be able to do this. And, and I thought it was a really uh, important thing and more just to like keep raising the professionalism of the game for the athletes. And, you know, we've got so many amazing athletes and yes. in our country and really intelligent athletes that have played in all different parts of the world. So to be able to bring back knowledge from, you know, other leagues that they've played in and, and what works well and, and what could be implemented to make, you know, our league the most professional league in a women's sport in Australia. And I think there's avenues that have been taken place with what we've seen with AFLW and uh, with netball and cricket and soccer and I believe we didn't want to fall behind because they all had um, players associations and people striving for that professionalism. And yeah, so that's where I sort of really started to get involved. And then it was after the 2016 um, Rio Olympics and Jacob made the next level again and, and creating a board. And he asked me to go onto the board and be another voice. And um, so I accepted that and then it sort of evolved from there. But the last nine months I've um, had my second daughter and so I must say that I haven't really been in the nitty-gritty of it all in the last nine months. It's more been the nitty-gritty of no sleep and, um, and big <laughs> mum. But at the same time, I'm, I'm still obviously very passionate and try and keep involved as much as I can and whenever I can. Great. It's a great initiative to have an organisation like the ABPA and particularly for the WNBL more than the NBL. And the reason I say that is the WNBL, unfortunately, doesn't have the same level of external commercial involvement as the NBL does, which means there is a greater need for an organisation to be able to provide a level of support to the players that may not necessarily come from the clubs because of financial constraints. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, you know, the ABPA, it's just a, a player's union. And it, it is obviously so much more. Mm -hmm. What sort of support does the, the ABPA provide to the players in the WNBL? So I think there's a lot of sort of avenues and, and resources that um, have evolved, obviously, from the start to now. And one of the big things that I think is really important is sort of that well-being side of the game. So and that's not so much on the basketball court, but the player off the basketball court as well. So like mental health in the sense of having resources to psychologists so it doesn't have to be a psychologist that's also like you know game psychologists which clubs may provide but it's you know other avenues which um, is all confidential and we've got two very amazing 
um, people to be involved and David Stiff is is one of those and he's a past NBL player himself, played for the the Sixers for a long time and other NBL clubs and so um, he is psychology trained so he's been on board for the last, I want to say, over two years. He's a great uh, resource for players so it's more that transition into the game than the transition of you know, being in the the middle of your career and then the transition out and then afterwards. So, you know, if you're a past player and, you know, you're trying to get a job or, you know, you're struggling with the fact that you have, you're stepped away from the game and, you know, he's a great resource for that. And then also Peter Gibbs, who he has uh, been around basketball for such a long time and also works for the Fremantle Footy Club. So he's one of the psychologists there. And so he's more about sort of that player well-being with education and trying to lots of different avenues. So if you've finished your uni degree or you, you're wanting to start uni or you're wanting to do a TAFE course or you've got a degree but now you're trying to create resumes or things like that. So it's really like a broad side of it so there's sort of that avenue and then um then we also have Andrew Montessi who's about creating a brand for athletes so he's got a model where and obviously this has been sort of evolving over the last few years so some players are taking it up and taking as much as they want and then some players probably haven't but then they've heard from other players that have done it and gone, oh, okay, I might try and do that. And talking about like what you are as a player and what you, how you want to be seen to sponsors or if you want to be able to do the speaking circle or that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's there's a, a lot of avenues. Uh, another side of it is you want to speak to an accountant to, you know, see what to, to do with your money. So there's a resource there or we've got education grants. So there's... You know, I could go on for a little while about the different avenues of what the Players Association does, but it's about obviously the part of the on the court and then this is a, a big part off the court that can help make you well-rounded athlete, player, person and um, making sure that your career can be as long and, you know, a happy career. So I don't know if you've got any other questions about that, but it's, um, yeah, I could talk about it for a while because I feel like it's a really important part of what the Players Association does and tries to help and and I think some new athletes probably will go you know oh yeah you know they don't think about it too much but they might then think about it more towards the end of their career but it's always going to be there it doesn't matter if you you don't take it up at one stage but you know no one's going to say we can't help you and that's where you might move out of a club and then they're ready to, you know, have their next 12 players on their contract and that they probably aren't remembering, you know, we could help you, in, you know, down the track. One of the points you touched on is is one that always is important for me is that transition out of the game. Because one of the things that you tend to see with a lot of sports is they're keen to get you in to a team or to their sport. There's all these incentives but then when you're getting to the back end of the career and you get a transition out of the sport, that level of support that you see at the beginning of the career isn't always there. Mm-hmm. So I find that that initiative in, on the part of the, the AVPA is a really important one. And I think it's one that needs to be more heavily promoted because I think that's, that's one of the key ones, uh, particularly for players that aren't really sure 
you know, what am I going to do once I've kind of moved out, particularly if they're playing, you know, WNBL and then play overseas? Basketball is their life for so long. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a really, really important part of being an elite athlete and your well-being after sport. And I know for myself, I feel like at the moment, you know, I'm very fortunate to be in a mother to two young kids and sometimes I feel like I I don't actually have time to miss the sport right now. But I know that there's some times where I'm, I'm watching a great game in the WNBL and, you know, it's coming to the last quarter or the last couple of minutes of the game and it's a close game. And then I'm like, oh, like I start to go, oh, I really, like, I want to be out there. I want to, I miss it. <laughs> and, you know, it makes you sad and it's a tough thing to go, oh, like, you know, but then I also get to reflect and say, I've had a long career. I've, I've learned so many things. I've made so many friends. I've got so many experiences. Basketball shaped the person I am today. So I can think on that and dwell on that. But, you, you know, you think about an athlete that might, they go down with a season or career ending injury and it's hard for them to come out of that. And that's where the Players Association are there and and some people might not want to take it up for you know you might reach out and they're like no I'm fine I'm fine but then they realize six months later two years down the track I'm not quite fine I I am struggling with this and we're a place that you can go to um, if you need help and or the people within the players association might not be able to help you directly but they'll try and find someone that can help you to be able to you know find your happy place again. That's great. It's, I think it's a really important initiative and one that it's really critical for a lot of the, a lot of the players. One of the other things that came up when we were having a conversation with Christy Collier Hill from the Deakin Melbourne Boomers a few weeks back was about the PPS. Now, obviously, as you said, you were kind of stepping back from the ABPA at the time, mm-hmm. but one of the things that we were talking about was the fact that there has to be a level of financial stability that has to come to the league to be able to allow it to grow and for the players to be able to get all these additional benefits of, you know, stability, better pay, better conditions and and everything that goes with that. At a higher level and in terms of your experience over the years in the league and in basketball, what do you think are the key areas that need to be looked at to be able to ensure that, an environment for the players to be able to grow and to thrive needs to happen. You know, obviously this is a big sort of area. And sure. I think that the the big thing I believe is just continually to grow the professionalism of the game because I think one of those things is the fact that, you know, last year and, and in a tough year during COVID, the fact that we could negotiate the first CBA, you know, some people were like, why, why would you do that? But it just shows professionalism. Like that we were the one women's code that had never done a CBA before and people were like, well, why do you need to do it? But it's just, it's growing that professionalism, making sure that every team in the league is doing the little things the same. So if it's on the road and what players are going to eat, so what how they're going to fuel their body is a really important thing because they're elite athletes. They're they're having to travel, they're putting their body under max pressure. Going to Subway is not like it, you know, it's about what kind of meal 
is the best? How are you going to fuel their bodies? And if you look around the league and you look at, you know, every player's social media, you know, a lot of them are talking about what they put in their body. You can see it by the way that their their body is their machine. So making sure that is a good meal, um, that a physio is being accessed and, you know, you think, oh, that's a cost for the team. But it's not about if your team can't afford to travel with a physio, you then have communication with a physio in that state or it might be you have a discussion with the opposition club physio to have access so that you know that the player, when they arrive there, they feel confident that if they've got a niggly back injury, they don't have to be doing it themselves, like rolling on a foam roll before the game. They've got a professional there to make sure, you know, they're looking at them, yep, you know, this is we can, you know, do this massage, we can make sure that we strap you up and you're good to go to play a game of basketball and you're not putting your body at risk, you know, or um, if you've got a tight calf, like, you know, you're getting off a plane, you want to be able to make sure you've done all the right things and that treatment is accessible. Whereas before without a CBA, the clubs, you know, you would hope that they would have that organised, but, and I know what clubs are like in the women's game, all those things you probably you're not not really thinking about it but now that's set in concrete so they're the type of things that professionalism that is so important so that the players are playing at their peak and they're playing at their best so that then we see great basketball and then you get those top sponsors you get if you're having double headers that they're not, you know, back to back where it's less than 24 hours. Players start to, especially when you're getting older, like myself, a double header is, you know, that's tough to do to back it up and to be able to play at your best. So making sure that, you know, you've got at least that time and, you know, obviously that's a uh, scheduling thing for the WNBL and they obviously want their games at the best, but you don't want a team to have to travel from one state to the other because it's on TV or you want to see a top game. So you don't want to have those disadvantages. So that's the kind of thing that, you know, players talk about and they they want to be heard and they want to be voiced and it's a, it's a collective thing across the league. So all those things to create that professionalism is such a good thing for the game. And that's why, you know, negotiated collective bargaining agreement you know it's those little things that add up to make a professional league and then our league stands out in front of all the rest and then you hope the revenue comes in from there because you're seeing the you know general hayes having standout nights because they're treated so well and mm. creating a a good atmosphere for fans for tv for the commentators to be able to you know get into the game and it's great for the league yeah, you, you touch on an interesting point about the professionalism of the league bringing in the sponsors. One of the things that I, I found interesting looking at the FIBA uh, survey on women's basketball was the percentage engagement of women in Australia playing basketball is quite high in comparison to other countries in the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of the, the, the teams that we go up against, Spain, we have a higher percentage of participation. And this is just a, a one of those blue sky questions. How do we convert that into commercial engagement? I think that it starts, and I think, you know, the WNBL is doing a great job. It's all about being able to be access all the games. So if that's live streaming the games, young children or women 
men you know I know there's so it doesn't just mean women obviously watching the WNBL there's you know my husband my you know friends that are, are men love the game too but they need to be able to access it and when you can access it and you can be seen it means that oh I get to watch that game and you can do it from your phone or your computer and then they're like oh I want to be able to go to the next game and and so it drives revenue and I think it is about access and making sure that people know who these players are and you can't strive to become an Opal or a WNBL player if it's not seen and it's not out there so the stepping stone of of using social media or, or using that live stream broadcast and it was fabulous having KO and, and it's it's word of mouth. It's that stepping stone and of talking about a game and then they're like, oh, I'd like to watch that. And then sort of it goes from there. And I bring it back to, to the AFL and the AFLW. You, you see it everywhere. So then mm-hmm. you get intrigued and you get engaged. And I know that that costs money to be able to, you know, put it out there. But I think as you go along and, and we've got such a great class of women's basketball and with the World Cup coming up and the Olympics coming up, we're so lucky that we do have those things. And Olympics, that's when we need to, you know, thrive off that and seeing the Opals out there playing and a lot of those players then playing in our league and then people want to go, oh, I want to watch them and I can see them live. You know, obviously it's it does take time, but we need to keep doing more. And I think that's one thing with Lauren Jackson and, and Paul Maley and they want it to be more professional and to be, you know, accessed. You know, it would be amazing if we had an app where you know the WNBL app where you can just log on and then you can watch a game and that will take time and hopefully that's closer than what it was you know a year or two ago I want my daughters to be able to easily access any game or or their hero and watch them at any time yeah I absolutely agree and it was interesting what you're saying about the other women's sports as well and their visibility because one of the things I've noticed that's going to be I'm not going to call it a problem, but it's going to be challenging at the end of this year is so many women's sports are effectively hitting the ground at the same time. So AFLW is going to be starting, I think, in November. The the WNRL is going through till early October. So that whole period from kind of September through till late February is starting to become very crowded for women's sports, which on one hand is a good thing because there's so many more sports available to watch, but there's also a potential for the audience to get cannibalised between the number of sports that are going to be on at that time. How does the WNBL address the competition for visibility? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I see the game of basketball and I love the game of basketball. And so I'm like, I think our athletes are amazing and the best. So why wouldn't you? But it is. It's a competitive environment. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think it just makes you, you know, work that harder and make sure that your players are out there. And I love the fact that the one thing about and and obviously there's other sports, but within basketball, we are, are worldly so we can be seen in different times so in the WNBA is going on right now and we have our athletes over there we've got our athletes playing in Europe we are all year round we're non-stop so I think that does help in a way the fact that you can see you know Elizabeth Cambridge 
playing right now and then that goes, oh, she's had a great game over there if she comes back to the WL. So I think that we need to capitalise on that and like what we're doing now. So we need to keep promoting our players wherever they are in the world 365 days a year. It's not just while the WBL is on. We need to keep promoting, keep engaging. And I know that so many of the athletes that I've played with, they're, you know, they're great public speakers. Getting them out and, and speaking to businesses or schools or and when they've got time and make it meaningful so that we can keep engaging within you know, the broader community. And, you know, you only need one athlete to go out and maybe speak at a sponsorship thing or something like that. And then that engages, you know, I really loved what she had to say and then they keep following. And I think that's the one really like positive thing that we have is basketball runs all year round. There's obviously other things as well, but I I think that's one thing that basketball does have on their side. No, I think it's I think it's a really good point. And uh, one of the other things with basketball is obviously it's one of those sports where you can represent your country on a global stage, whereas some of the other sports like AFLW, it's pretty much played here. So the opportunity to be able to represent your country is very, very limited. Do you think that being able to have so much international competition with the Olympics, World Cup next year, and a WNBL season in between gives an opportunity to be able to try and raise the profile above high visibility sports like AFLW and WNRL just on the basis of the level of international competition that'll take place? Yeah, it definitely. And then it needs to be commercialised in the right way. So you can't, you know, when the Olympics is coming up, you need to make sure that, you know, through social media or getting on, uh, you know, television and making sure that you're promoting these athletes and not having to make them do, you know, all these interviews, just getting their names out there and, and making sure that people know who they are, that they're, they're being seen through that period. And yeah, that's a really important thing. And having a World Cup, um, I think it was, what well, it was Oz 94. And I was, well almost 11 years old when Oz 94 was in Australia and I remember it and that's what made me go I got to go to a game uh Opals versus Italy still remember it in used to be called um so it's Titanium Arena now it was I think it was a powerhouse back then and um my parents got me tickets and I think that was the best thing my parents ever did for me because I got to witness these athletes, you know, the Michelle Tim, Sandy Brondello, Rachel Spawn, who was, you know, my idol, and see them live. And that's something so special. And it, you know, it made me go home and practice my left-hand layups every day of the week because they did it so easily. So, you know, when your coach said, you need to make a left-hand layup, I was like, yeah, I do. So um, the, the World Cup is a huge thing and we need to make sure it's promoted, it's out there and then parents, grandparents, anyone possible go to those games and, and not only watch the Opals but watch other countries play in Australia because it doesn't happen very often and it's going to be a, a pretty special thing. So if we look at, at the overall situation for women's basketball, Things are looking pretty good. You know, we've got a lot of good competition coming out of the out of the hub season. We're still not sure what the WNBL season's going to look like this year, but that experience shows that the league can pretty much organise something so that we've got competition. 
the big issue that we've got to look at is the wider promotion of the sport, trying to get get things picked up in newspapers, uh, TV, and whatever else is available, including social media. How does the sport try and capitalise on it? How do we try and get that level of engagement? Because obviously with, with some of the more mainstream media like newspapers and TV, basketball is not always uppermost of mind for them. Yeah, and I, I think the one thing that I know players are trying to do themselves is, you know, their own brand. And that's one thing, you know, going back to the ABPA is is trying to help players create their own brand so that it is seen and it is picked up. And, and we're very lucky in basketball that we've got, you know, Roy Ward and, and Megan Husswaite that are pushing for our sport to be out there and they they're so critical of that and I think that they really appreciate basketballers because basketballers they're happy to talk and happy to promote their sport so for Basketball Australia the WNBL to keep engaging with you know the newspapers and making sure that they're sending out media releases constantly and picking things up and making sure it's professional so that any time that I would in Adelaide, the advertiser, if they would come to me and they'd always be like, oh, you're, you know, you're so good to work with. And because basketballers are. So that name for itself is is really important and really key. So we need to keep educating players on, on how to communicate with the media and how to, you know, communicate on their own social media and that positive impact. And sometimes there will be the negative story is always the story that they want, but trying to then make a spin on the positive side of it. So it's a obviously always a work in progress. And, um, you know, you look at what the NBL have been doing and, the, you know, that league's grown and, I, and the WNBL has grown as well. And, and I think that the NBA and the WNBA and the, the Australian players playing within those two leagues is helping it grow again. So it's not obviously a click of the fingers, it's going to happen, but that continual growth and not being disheartened if a story doesn't get picked up, you know, you find the next one because there are so many good stories to be told within basketball. It's, you touched on an interesting point, which was basketball players are always willing to talk about their sport. Well, I think one of the things that the WNBL has nailed really well is the accessibility of the players, not only to the media, but also to the fans. Unlike some of the other sports where they tend to try and put a gatekeeper between the media and the fans and the players. I think that's one of the big strengths that the WNBL brings. But with that, there's also the challenges of the players engaging with yeah, particularly across social media, because unfortunately there is a there's always a group on social media who tend to want to be negative. That obviously would have an effect on the players. How does the ABPA look at that approach, and what sort of advice they provide to players where they're doing that and they're getting negative feedback across social media? Yeah, I think that's one thing um, and with the the Players Association, communication is key and you're not always going to get it perfect but communication is a huge thing and two staff members, Mel Cooper um, and Tyson Demos and both athletes themselves, Tyson was an NBL player himself and Mel is a Olympic hockey player for New Zealand and both very, you know, high up there. So, 
having people like that on board and and Peter Gibbs and David Steerforth, whoever they are within the Players Association, it might even be we have our own lawyer, Laura Siegel, another Laura. So trying to be across it and, and if something does come up, then reaching out to that athlete and making sure they're okay and, you know, if they'd seen it, if they hadn't, you know, just being aware of what's going on or even um, within the Players Association, there's, you know, different pillars. So within a team, each team has delegates. There might be one delegate, there might be three delegates of a team. And on our website, you can see who the delegates are for each team and, and making sure that they're looking out for their players and making sure that if something has come up that they are okay. That's one of the things and, and communication is a side of that. So I think that the well-being side of it is huge and delegates have the option to, and I think it's been sort of happening in, in the period where they go in and they have mental health sort of seminars about you know, looking out for their teammates maybe struggling and if it, you know, working it out. And and I think clubs are, I would hope, are above that as well. But as, you know, if clubs are addressing it, the players' associations are addressing it, teammates are looking out for each other, but it's all about communication and sticking with that person because you, you, you're always going to have those people out there that are negative. You, you'd love the world to be different. Um and you'd love to stop it, but social media can bring that. So you can bring a huge positive side of it, but that negative side, you know, you'd hope that players don't see that, but sometimes it does get seen if it's sent to their page or, you know, things like that. So it's a really a key issue that we need to make sure that our players are, are looked after and that, you know, they know people that care and that can be there to be a sounding board are there. Do all the teams have like an equal number of delegates or does it vary from team to team or is it more personality based? So when it started, it was more you'd want one delegate from each team um, with the Players Association. And then, as we all know, that a delegate might move from one team to the other. Mm. But And it didn't mean that you want then that person not to be a delegate because there's already a delegate there. So you want at least one from each team. But we had a period last year, we realised there was five delegates within one team. But the five, that that's so important. That means yeah. that and then you, you're making sure that you're bringing someone else in and the levels of communication, there's always emails. You might have texts that go out. You'll have the um, ABPA website or Facebook or Instagram, social media, but delegates is another level where you have delegate meetings and you'll talk about probably um, more intricate things and then they take that information back to the players and then the Players Association making sure that they do rounds and, and talk to the teams. And sometimes there are no issues. It's just to catch up face-to-face, knowing that, you know, the Players Association is still here. Are there any questions? Are there any issues? And it might be um, a team meeting where it could be, could last five minutes or it might last an hour because that team's thought of something that, you know, may help the league or may help um, the players in a certain way. But it's uh, really important to have those meetings and keep those communications going. And and then it might be a one-on-one and, you know, it might be 
Peter Gibbs, for example, who he might say, anyone want to have a coffee, a chat, talk about how they, you know, their uni or struggles or um, time management or whatever. So levels of communication, there's lots of different ones. And the delegates is a key thing, I think, that's really helped the Players Association because they're the people that some might be, you know, the veterans, they're some young um, players that are coming through that are really passionate that, you know, think that they can help in certain ways. It's a really mixed, broad group of athletes. So I think that's a really good way to communicating and getting a good, broad communication throughout the whole league. With the player delegates, do the NBL player delegates and the WNBL player delegates kind of talk to one another to sort of get ideas from each other that could be applied to their own leagues? I think that's always going to be the way. Like some is is very much the same and some you might have sort of differences as well. We're trying to create that parity between both leagues and you would love it to be the same. But Mm. obviously minimum wage is very different to the NBL, to the WNBL. But, you know, trying to get the the level of, say, accommodation you're in to having, making sure that we don't have six foot seven athletes in a single bed. You know, there's all different ranges, but those kind of levels that you want the same, you want to be able to have the same access to good quality food on the road. And yeah, so I think that there is certainly that connection and obviously I think NBL players really enjoy watching the WNBL just as much as the WNBL enjoy watching the NBL. And you hope that within basketball you can have that relationship with different athletes. You know, just our board meetings, you know, I'm listening to what's happening on the NBL, the WNBL, Opals, Boomers, you know, always getting ideas of what's important along the way there. Okay. And look, one last question because I don't want to keep you from, you know, your your kids. (laughs) Um, this is actually a nice break from uh, (laughs) (laughs) what's on the horizon for the abpa in terms of things that are that are on the runway so i think the um the big things is collective bargaining agreement coming up with the opals and the boomers and that's always a, a big thing but it's just continuing to grow obviously the players association we don't probably have as many staff members as say the AFLPA, but it's, you know, growing the association, but from the player's voice. So what the players need and what they think is important. So there's all always going to be that growth, but there's always going to be the next, you know, CBA standard player contract and making sure that you have the right people to help the players. And this past year, who would have thought that you know, no one could have predicted what was going to happen with COVID. And I think that was another big flashing light that how important the Players Association was because one of the big things is a lot of players were struggling and that's when the ABPA stepped in and, and gave out grants to be able to help athletes be able to pay their mortgage and, and do that when clubs had stood them down more in the NBL one. So they players and especially the women's players rely on that off-season contract. So I think that's when players really realise that that's a really beneficial thing and the ABPA was still there to help 
players, you know, if they wanted to get into their study and having grants for study and and things like that. So that was a a really big thing. And that's where that support sort of still needs to be there because obviously COVID's not going away. And Jacob Holmes and and all the staff have done such a great job in trying to, to help the players off the court in that that scenario and obviously thinking of the future of okay so how can we um, help the players that are still struggling because of what's happened with COVID and it's uh, always going to be evolving and I think that there'll always be you know more growth and just like there would be within the WNBL and Basketball Australia and looking for the future and how can you make it better. You just touched on something if an external organisation wanted to get involved with the ABPA, you know, commercial organisations uh, who can provide guidance to players on, you know, post-career or whatever, how would they go about doing that? The best way is to go onto the website. So if you just type in um, Australian Basketballers Players Association, then click on the website and it's a really um, simple website to read and there is an email and contact there. So it's more of an admin thing. And we've got uh, an amazing lady called uh, Renee Maycock, who was actually our team manager um, for the Opals through the 2010-2012 Olympics. And she's uh, a guru and she's come across the Players Association. So she does all that and looks her through all the emails. And yes, yeah, we're very lucky to have her. And we're always looking for people to be able to to help out and give their expertise. And yeah, it's most appreciated. Great. Laura, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you joining us on the show and hope to speak to you really soon. Thank you so much for having me. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.